0: what's good everyone my name is austin ash and i am on the chopping block at visceralchange.org listen what we do i don't have anything to say no i'm nervous
1: yeah that's your easy listening station right now you're listening to the chopping block you're listening to the chopping block you're listening to the chopping block on the visceral change podcast welcome back everybody for another amazing of course episode of the chopping block thank you all for being with us whether you are watching us on youtube or vimeo or whether you're listening through any of your streaming services we have a delight for you today i'm here with my brother my man my guy one one of the few guys who came to check me out when i came back home to massachusetts soon to be dr austin ash brother ash how you doing
0: man uh Sherard, i'm doing great man um it is uh, it is always a joy and a gift to see you uh and so i'm just happy to be here happy to to, to catch up to chop it up chop uh, it up <laughs> so, so just happy
1: to be here man i'm good i'm good thank you thank you for being here man we uh, and thank you for carving out some space i'm here in tucson you're in massachusetts we got at this point in time at the time of this recording we've got a two-hour difference um so thank you for carving out some space uh Austin, currently you are the, and it's a little bit of a lengthy title, you are the Senior Associate Director, Belonging and Culture, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Sloan School of Management. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that is precise. (laughs) I've I've had my my fair share of lengthy titles as well, so I, I get it. But you're also an adjunct professor at Bunker Hill Community College.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is um I'm happy to talk about that. That has been um uh such a joy um, oh, yeah. to kind of have adjacent to my to my full-time position is to teach at Bunker Hill, a great community over there. Without a doubt. We're gonna we're definitely gonna dig into that shortly. Um, but
1: I want to kick it off just somewhat before I kick it off, actually, to 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 the questions from the door. It's been a while, so so I, I just gotta ask you, uh I had another hip hop head on recently um, who really, really provided some good insight, Dr. Eric House. Um, and I got to start with you the same way I started with him. Okay. Uh, what's your take on the current state of hip hop?
0: Oh, I <laughs> thought you were going to ask me for a top five or something. I uh, what, I oh. um, <laughs> what is my current, I, uh, you know, what do I think about the current state of hip hop? Um, that's, that's murky waters. Um, but not as murky as we think. I think the current state of hip hop is very healthy. Um, and it it depends on what you, what, when you say hip hop, right? Are we talking about music? Are we talking about the culture as a whole? Right? Right? So if we're talking about music, I still think it's healthy. If we're talking about the culture, I still think it's actually healthy. The music is different though, right? Like, we are, sonically, we are, um, we are faced with the challenge of being prescribed like certain music um, uh, through radio, right? Mm-hmm. And so radio has its own agendas in respect to what they play, um, how frequently they play it, and what messages they're trying to send out. And, and I don't listen to the radio uh, mm-hmm. that much anymore because the messages that I'm hearing don't reflect the the core of what hip-hop began as right. which right. right which is um sharing our narratives about our lived conditions yes um, yep. right um truthfully like there's still some of that right like some of that stuff breaks through um however i don't think that is on main uh, as a, a dominant presence on mainstream radio like it used to like right. in the 80s and 90s when hot 97 and let's right. you know, quote like like these pillars of radio um and pillars of hip-hop were you know doing their due diligence to share the message right with that said um so mainstream hip-hop is kind of what everyone hears um however i think you know, to use the analogy of crate digging i think you have to dig in the crates to to find out to discover like where that hip-hop where the true essence of hip-hop is living right now right and so the beauty of streaming services is that right randomly given like they're different um like how they the the uh how they suggest music to you right right um, the through, algorithms there yeah that's i was like what's <laughs> that <word? laughs> the algorithms right uh-huh. You know, you might discover some new folks. Like I've discovered plenty of new uh, people. I, I was just listening to some uh, some Mac Homme, uh the other day, mm. uh, Haitian cat, mm-hmm. um, who's running with uh, Griselda, I believe. And so okay. I never heard of the guy. And um, music's incredible. Like talking about the state of Haiti, um, a place that I don't really know that much about beyond right. what I've um, seen in the news. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's just one example. Um, And I think streaming services have allowed for independent creation. And so whatever your story is, you can get it out there, generate a following without the label, right? Uh, Being a a slave to the label. And I use that word intentionally, right? Right. Sure. Um, Because we know the history of people getting jerked around with bad deals. Right. So I I do think that it is healthy. Um, I worry somewhat about the next generation about what they are consuming Mm -hmm. however hip-hop is a youth culture um, and driven by youth culture and so they're only going to be as good as our ability to reach back so Uh, i like that so um so if we're doing our due diligence to reach back i think the state of hip-hop in its entirety will be fine uh, and will remain fine and true to the essence
1: i can appreciate that i um i i admittedly struggle and, and my man iggy gives me grief about this often he's not he's not entirely wrong uh, yeah. i'll never tell him that so if he's listening that's your, that's your one you one you get from me um but like some of us old heads have a habit of sort of living so much in the past that we we don't give today enough credit you talked about how it's healthy and such and i'm notorious for that across the board my favorite athletes are going to come from back in the day right? i'm looking at the jordans right the larry birds etc my favorite wrestler still from the Attitude Era, right? Back in the day, we're not yeah, looking at yeah. today. Um, you know, and same with my rappers. I, I, I want to, if I remember correctly, you and I share a favorite rapper of all time? Or, or so it's Nas. Nas, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, right? And, and you know, for many of the reasons you talked about, you want to talk about someone who not just stated it, but eloquently stated what was going on around in, in, in story mode and um, somebody who, if was given the quill, if you will, I think could also, uh, you know, today put out something that was um, uh, revolutionary mm-hmm. in a way that moved younger folk. If that was something he was he was driven to do, right? So there's a lot there's a lot to unpack in there. We'll we'll come back around shortly when we talk a little bit about some of the classes you're teaching, or at least one of the classes you're teaching. Um, but let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Yeah, born and raised in Connecticut, West Haven um uh i looked at the population at least as of 2021 Mm -hmm. uh and we see that west haven is 63 percent white Mm -hmm. um and 20 percent black by contrast with those two particular identities Mm -hmm. um was this a similar makeup when you were growing up and and if so uh how did your experience growing up in a majority white space shape how you saw the
0: world moving forward yeah, so I grew up in West Haven, but I didn't grow up in a predominantly white space, um, and so um, we lived um, in what were called the Meadow Brook apartments, uh, and so a little nook of West Haven um, that was probably predominantly Black, Latino, and okay. Asian. Uh, so. Uh, I mean, plenty of white folks, but I mean, sure. we were definitely the majority. Um, and so middle to low to middle class, right. Um, but lots of it was in, you know, I grew up in the 80s. And so it was a time where people really looked out for one another. And, right. um, you know, a lot of my my father was, you know, my dad was not in the picture. And so I hung around with a lot of the um, you know, older kids and older heads for knowledge yeah. and, you know, and got into some trouble here and there and all of that kind of mm-hmm. good stuff. But um, um, so I didn't grow up in a predominantly white space. However, um, education, uh, my mom would, you know, always hark on this comes first. And um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I will just say that we, my grandmother God rest her soul, lived in a part of West Haven that um, that basically sent, like, she was dist- in a district that the, the children from that school went to a different public school, okay. so I'll say that. Yeah. So, um, so I had dual citizenship, so we'll mm. say that, and um, I went, ended up at Pagels um, Elementary, which was a predominantly white school. Um and I talk about some of this in my research. And so growing up, you know, and I was before we, you know, got on, I was talking about Du Bois, right? And that double consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. That strong sense that I am black, right? From from eight or seven, from the moment I wake up to when I get to school is different. Right. Because mm-hmm. I'm in my bubble and my black and brown um Asian community. Right. School, I'm the black kid. Right. Right. That's right. different. Right. And so navigating those systems even as uh, a young cat, right? Is something I was hyper aware of because I didn't, I was shy. I was mad shy mm-hmm. growing up. and I didn't really talk much and they thought I had like a speech problem right right and so my experience was they were looking at me through a different lens and it's like I'm just not messing with y'all like that (laughs) you know um and so my experience was different because of that um and over the years um there was a you know you I, I seriously had to wrestle with like, does being successful mean being closer to whiteness? Right? Is it an, mm-hmm. Is it a proximity thing? Um, and so I grew up with these questions, right? And um, and still very proud of my mother and my grandmother, um, who are, you know, to this day, uh, my my some of my biggest inspirations. Right. Um, but there was there was something there, right? That like if I am in these spaces, I have possibly a higher chance to be successful, which, right, that's how they socialized me. That's right. Right. Um, And so I didn't really break free of that until, um, until like probably the middle of high school. Um, And so I had, I had, um, while I was at home, I had my black friends. But I would go to you know um, the other part of town and hang with those cats for the summer, just like kind of living in two worlds. Right. Because I wanted all like I loved my friends at home, but I'm like, yo, like, I, I I'm like, if I hang with these cats, like, I'll be able to join like the the, the football right. team or the yeah. like. There was there was you know the, some the privilege capital there. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um. So yeah, so it was very different. I broke through of that um, in high school when I made the decision that I wanted to go to college and have a bit of a different experience um, yeah. and meet different people. So right. um, so it was very, it was my experience growing up in West Haven was very much one of a uh, feeling of dual citizenship because right. of how I was socialized.
1: Makes total sense. Um, you know, I, and I think about just my experience in Massachusetts Boston, you know, when I moved around the country later on in life, you know, a lot of folks were like, wait, the black Bostonian, I've never seen one. I know that was a yeah. real thing. Yeah. Know, the, the city's 25% black actually. Right. And although 25% black means that it's 75% something else, mm-hmm. you know, in a country where the population is 13.4% black, that's a lot of people in, in a concentrated area, given the, the numbers at large. And so, you know, 20%, you know, for the folks who, who are not coming from Black communities, make no mistake about it. I mean, that's a decent number of Black folks in a given space, especially in the Northeast, yeah. uh, especially in New England. Um, yeah. And so uh, it stands to reason why you would have sort of a dual experience given the demographics as well. Sticking within Connecticut, you went on to receive your bachelor's from Quinnipiac, um, mm-hmm. and then you went and got your master's from Springfield College in Massachusetts. Was, was higher ed always the goal for you?
0: No. No. I didn't know I didn't know what my goal was <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> trying to f- figure it out as you like yeah. most of us did right yeah 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 so I came in to um I came into Quinnipiac right also predominantly white space but I was able to identify um some incredible friends um that you know we called ourselves basically like the united nations because we had from every uh, every part of the uh you know parts of the the, the diaspora you know um asian pacific islander areas right, right? Yep. Um, so anyways so i went to quinnipiac i thought that, so i majored in communications i thought i was going to be on espn or like on mtv right when they showed videos right yeah so, <laughs> right um and so that's not a realistic career goal, um, as was told to me by, you know, certain people, my mother, grandmother, right? And so at some point, I, um, I, still, I stuck with that because I actually almost, be, I came this close to having my own show. I auditioned for Hello. something on MTV and it came, I, I was, I was hey. going to go to New York and like, possibly sign something, um, oh. but it never happened. Fell through? Uh, <sighs> that's another conversation for another time right (laughs) uh uh, however um in the middle i think around my sophomore sophomore year i had this incredible psychology professor Mm -hmm. and just the way he thought about people and like why people are motivated to behave in certain ways fascinated me and so i added psychology as a as a as my second major and so my thread Um, kind of led me there. Um, I was also super involved as a student and the combination of understanding people through the lens uh, of psychology and um, being a student leader and um, working with folks in ways to motivate them to, you know, um, be their best selves or be curious uh, was something that I always uh, was uh, always enjoyed doing. So I was an right. orientation leader, I was on BSU, I was on a bunch of other stuff, right? Um, and so I didn't really come to higher education as a viable career goal until uh, until I spoke with um, w- two of my mentors. Uh, one, her name is Cheryl Barnard, and two, um, uh, Manny, uh, Manuel Carrero, uh, mm-hmm. who has since passed away a few years mm-hmm. ago, a great man. Um, and they said, why aren't you interested in higher education? I'm like, wait, oh, you do this and you get paid for this. <laughs> right. Maybe I'm like, yeah, I would, I think I would enjoy this. So I ended up last minute applying to Springfield, I think in like April. And I mean, yeah. you know how, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah. so they had a That's role wrong.
0: mission, uh, thankfully. And I was able to meet with uh, their program director. Loved her. Her name's Delight Champagne. I mean, I mean, you can't really go wrong. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> and, Solid. Right. So, um, and lo- and and ended up right uh, in a career of higher ed. I spent two years at Springfield. Became very interested in issues related to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and the student experience and the staff experience. And then, um, and then sub- subsequently graduated. But um, my leadership experience at Quinnipiac, um, led me to Springfield, um, and Springfield really opened up the gates for me through, uh, my grad studies and also like certain professional development, act, uh, activities. What's up, man?
1: We, we, uh, <clears throat> when I was in college, we played Springfield, I think one mm-hmm. time, got smacked, uh <laughs> yeah. some, some big boys uh you know but but uh that's why, <laughs> my running with them okay. uh but I feel you on your journey to higher ed your master's in what we would have called hisa higher education yeah. So, student administration or student affairs as is mine um you know I also was I was actually pitched it it was pitched to me as a residence life degree. <laughs> hey, you should, you know, uh, go to this program, you know, you, you, you get a residence life degree. What the heck? I was an RA for one year. <clears throat> so I was like, oh, well, I know what that is, right? So you, sometimes we kind of stumble upon things and some of the advice I try to give the youth of today, uh, and we're gonna talk about your role with the youth shortly, um, is, you know, f- folks who are undecided trying to figure out what do I do in college. I let them know, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career till I was 25. Yeah, no framework. I, no framework. I was just floating. And it wasn't until I got to my master's program, literally, my decision to get an advanced degree, what I thought was res life degree, <clears throat> the first game we played in class was student affairs scrabble. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, student affairs categories. Mm-hmm. And through that game, I got to see all of the offices and units that were inside of student affairs, like DEI, like admissions, like res life. And I said, wow, I can do a bunch of these things. So a lot of times it's just coming to it. Mm-hmm. We talked offline about this idea of hip hop ed. Um, for the listeners who don't know, what is it? What is hip hop ed?
0: Yeah, I'll, um, the, the answer I want to give is a lot longer, but I will <laughs> okay. say um, hip hop ed is basically a cultural educational movement right that um, seeks to introduce elements of hip-hop um, all of the cultural elements of hip-hop right so not just mcing djing uh breaking graffiti, graffiti. Um, and knowledge of self right mm-hmm. but also um ways of speaking ways of being ways of knowing ways of dressing like you know anything that has to do with hip-hop incorporating those elements, right? How we understand ourselves uh, through a hip hop lens in uh, into the field of teaching, right? right? And so looking at content, but also looking at pedagogy, right? Yep. And and looking at pet, making decisions on pedagogy and making larger des- decisions about the curriculum. And, and um, uh, in a lot of ways, um, And historically, hip hop has been described as kind of a culturally relevant or culturally sustaining approach to teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And now it's be kind of come it's it's kind of become more than that because it informs um, how we build relationships with students, um, how we view our institutions, how education could be constructed to be a especially important uh for these current times as a tool of resistance for students yeah um and so so i'll say that right it is incorporating hip-hop culture in ways that um displace what is a historically problematic educational system um the research a lot of research for hip-hop ed um the foundation has been laid in uh, K through 12, mm-hmm. right? And so, and, and has now evolved to incorporate um, more things, right? Uh, higher education is probably a a, 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 a growing area of, of interest, but still heavily rooted in in K through 12. Yeah, without a doubt. Um,
1: even when you start talking about policy as well, my uh, my phd the program is education and leadership and policy and within that is a lot of discussion around k12 they try to go to k20 but the, that k12 element is there which is which is important which will come up shortly um talk about your research a little bit you examine and i want you just to expound on this for me but you're you're examining sort of the experience of black faculty um, that practice hip hop in higher education and and sort of trying to engage what that approach means in terms of as you call sort of uh, emancipatory power yeah expand on that a little bit for us
0: yeah so i mean this is this is all all this stuff is connected um gerard the the stuff that we've been talking about right um this dual citizenship idea this double consciousness idea right so um socially um the, the cultural systems that I have navigated and survived, right, right. higher education, graduate education, um, even um, working as a professional, like all these spaces I've worked in or been in have been predominantly white spaces. And so I'm going to tell you a story about kind of how I arrived at my research, right, Please. and kind of what it is. Please. Um. So I didn't, I wasn't aware of how powerful white dominance uh, whiteness was working on me as a professional right. And so for years, you know i've worked at a number of institutions i've been in higher ed for probably about 15 years, give or take. That is a long time not to be aware of something, right? Right. Like I considered myself a disruptor and, you know, um, and had worked on issues related to race, equity, and inclusion, like throughout higher ed. However, in the background, I'm still being conditioned to, um, to think of things through the lens of whiteness. Like, even if it means yes. disrupting things, I'm like, what's the the whiteness way to disrupt something, right? Yes, right. Yep. So, um, so I arrive at Bunker Hill um, Community College of Mass. I am a first or second year um, PhD student at this point, and I am teaching a course called Hip Hop uh, in America. So you know, I'm excited about the coursework, you know, I got a whole syllabus planned, everything is great, like, this is going to be the best class these students ever have, like, that's what I'm going in thinking, right, super prepared. Uh, We have a good first class, I'm like, you know, kind of warm and cold, like, you know, some students really excited about the content, but, you know, some others weren't, and then two, three weeks go by and I'm like, yeah, I'm really not getting, um, interaction with like a significant piece of the students. Right. 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 So I'm thinking of deeply about this. I'm like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Um, I'm like, mm-hmm. well, they must be disinterested. And then I came across, um, I was, I was, uh, you know, trying to find my dissertation topic, right? Like what's the problem I'm looking at? So I was looking at um some work by um jangle paris and sammy Al- Al- alim um or alim I, I forget how his name is last name is pronounced but um they're doing some research in culturally relevant uh culturally sustained pedagogy along with some lats and billings and bell hooks like i'm reading through this sure right and so i had this moment i'm like driving in my car thinking about the class um like on my way to my next class my fourth class man these students and then I'm like yo I'm the problem I'm the problem on yeah. yeah so I'm sitting there thinking about all of the things that I've been reading right um centering the student centering the student's culture the importance of translation the importance of liberatory classrooms right for you know um you know, Paulo Freire stuff, like cultural circles, right? All of these things. I'm like, I'm doing none of these things in my practice, right? So I I pull up um, to the class and um, I'm like, what am I, you know, now, you know, I'm still in the, like, I had a revelation. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. Right. Sitting In my car. um, I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to approach this? Um, and um, I did two things differently, um, yeah. just to start off. Yeah. I um, I walked into the classroom, and I would try to call the class to order, because I thought it was disordered. Right? The students are having conversations; they're building relationships. I see that, you know, prior to this, like as y'all are getting in the way of the lesson. Um, However, what I needed to know is that they were doing the work of building relationships with each other, uh, right? And it's it was my mistake not to jump in and lean into that. Right? Reimagining um, the pedagogy in some senses of, of a classroom house being conducted. Yeah, abducted. right. Wow, okay. So, so I don't call the class to order. And then, right, like at some point, like 10, 15 minutes later, um right in bunker hill is the most diverse place i've ever taught at slash right so like yo how come you're not convening the class i'm like i had a copy of the syllabus and i threw it in the trash i'm like yo um, (laughs) my bad (laughs) listen so um and i was just honest with them i'm like um you know because i come in as you know i used to be a graffiti writer all these things and so i was I had marketed myself in ways that was not reflecting the way that I was teaching, right? right? Or how I thought I should teach. Um, and so whiteness was working on me, or what I thought I had to be as an academic was working mm-hmm. on me, right? And so I said, We're going to do this collaboratively. What do y'all want to do with the next like six or seven weeks of this class? And long story short, uh, Sherard, like things got infinitely better, right? They were more engaged. I had more material on relevant topics, on topics that were relevant to them, um, artists that were relevant to them. And then that gave me energy that they had energy. So I'm like, let me dig for different stuff, right? Let me discover some things. And the last six or seven weeks were incredible. Yeah. The last week, one of the quietest students who didn't really say much did like a like 2 3 minute freestyles cuz he was a, he was he was a rapper like he these are things that he never talked about leading up to the end of the class and then right. he just breaks out with this freestyle talking about his life his you know juggling jobs trying to be <laughs> a student trying to go to a four year institution like killing it all trying of the things it. that we see as outside of the scope of the class yep. but like the students were most engaged when he was the teacher, right? Like wow. he felt most validated when he was teaching, right? And so I brought that to the next time I taught the course. We did a lot, like a lot of I'm gonna sit down and y'all are gonna give a presentation on hip-hop as a resistance, right? Teach the class, right? Giving them a framework. Right, because that's yep. my responsibility. But letting them share, like, share the knowledge that they bring into the classroom, and so my research looks at what happened to me,
1: uh, right, and, yes. and
0: asks the question: Does this happen to other Black faculty um, at in higher education? Yep. And I'm specifically interested in um, in faculty that practice hip-hop ed if hip-hop ed was like a response or um kind of uh like they went into this originally with like this approach and like how hip-hop ed um has the power to free us from the constrictions of what we think teaching good teaching and what good scholarship and good um research is uh so um so i use Du Bois' double consciousness as kind of a conceptual framework where we have Black identity and faculty identity. Mm -hmm. And if you can picture um, a DNA double helix, right? Mm -hmm. And you know how they twirl around each other. And so my conceptual framework looks at these two identities in hip-hop ed as kind of the the binding proteins in the middle, right? A pedagogical bridge between the two. Um, identities and over time do those two identities become more of a straight line because uh and and thanks to hip-hop ed like because you are you are teaching from an epistemological framework um that reflects who you are culturally um the legacy of your ancestors Mm -hmm. And decenters whiteness um, and centers collaborative learning and l- liberatory practices and practices that are meant to emancipate people. Do those two identities become um, closer over time? And what do those moments, like what are the critical linchpin moments that are involved with those two identities become closer together? So that's essentially what my research looks at. It's a wow. qualitative study. Um, where I'll be doing interviews with faculty that uh, practice hip-hop ed. And I can,
1: I can already see that being super transformative and the ways in which we receive the culture. I mean, I, it's, it's making me think of, you know, yeah, so I'll be completely transparent and honest. Uh, Hamilton came to Broadway, mm-hmm. to Tucson, not too long ago. Uh, and I, it was my first time seeing it. Mm-hmm. Or hearing the soundtrack or anything that had to do with Hamilton at all. Well, I know Hamilton, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a yeah, historian, you know, just in general. But I'm, I'm six years late or, or whatever. And, you know, I was like, oh, wow, I'm all blown away in the audience and everyone else is singing along. I'm like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I had no idea. I'm not a huge musical guy, but I had a feeling I was going to be able to connect in one way or another because there's a hip hop element to it. And mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, um, I was able to di- digest even if I wasn't you know, versed to a degree in, in history and in, in, in legal studies, et cetera, I would have been able to digest the message just because it was presented in hip hop form, really, uh, in a way that I was able to, to have access to. I had a conversation yesterday about some of these things. And in order to, you know, when we talk about some of the disparities, remember, we're also acknowledging that there's an access point that folks need to have or that folks don't have that's causing these disparities. And maybe one reason why someone can't understand the material is because it's being presented to them in a language, if you will, that does not resonate. Which, which, which brings me to your, your current role at, at MIT. Mm-hmm. Talk about what you do in this role um, and uh, to what degree you still serve the undergrads because the, your, a, a, prior, a former role of yours was really associate director of undergraduate education. And, and listening to you talk, I have to imagine that there is, what word do I want? It's important to ensure that that the youth and folks who, who are at the undergraduate level in this case, have access to these conversations early on. Um, now, um, my question to you was, what do you do in your role currently? And then how much are you still able to work with undergraduate students?
0: Yeah, so um, I'll answer the, the first question first. Um, so my role, Really is to um, look at our our institution as a whole, right, and figure out what are the elements we need to incorporate in our work that make people feel that they belong, um, and what can we do from understanding our our school as a cultural system, right. Um, to make sure that people like that that we can create a feeling of belonging a feeling of inclusion a feeling where people feel that there is equity um, and that there are um systemic ways that we are looking at diversifying our population in right and responsible ways because we just don't want to bring people into a school Where they're going to look around and say, "Mm, something's not right here. Um, Or it doesn't seem that they're working on anything um, that is related to equity and inclusion and anti racism and and all of these things, right? Right. And so, um, so taking a very data driven systemic approach uh, to creating cultures of of inclusion and belonging. uh, So, that is like my general focus. Some of the central things I'll be working on is um, the introduction and sustaining of a uh, what we are calling an open and inclusive training program, series of workshop discussions around, right like um, how to create environments of psychological safety so that people can talk through about, about and through difference. And yes about and through issues related to a lot of the systemic societal problems that we have going on here uh, today, but also, right, like not to just look at things from a lens of uh, of problems, but like the beauty and the strength of having a diverse community, the fact that we're smarter together when we are more diverse, right? Um, right. so. Um, So the training, the series of workshops will look at that. Um, How do we create that Um, for workshops? Uh, We're finalizing the content right now. Uh, And essentially what will happen is that people will go through this training and then will be able to actually uh, be, become the trainers. and right? So it becomes an embed fa- embedded fabric into the Sloan experience where we have uh, ambassadors for this process. And you yeah. can say, this is who we are, and if you want to be part of our community, here is some here is a four part experience where you can learn about how to successfully, how to be successful here. And how to create successful relationships. So that's, um, so that's the ethos of, of the work. Um, that is very staff and faculty facing, but there is also a student uh, component to it because a lot of this stuff will impact students, right? Of course. Curriculum wise, advising wise, et cetera. Um, so um, my last role, as you had mentioned, was with undergrad. Um, and with undergrad, I was able to, you know, thanks to. Um, The great colleagues I had, um, their names are Scott and Natalie. They're just incredible people. Mm -hmm. I was able to dabble in a lot of things, uh, committees that were DEI-focused, initiatives, conversations, creating space for people, um, especially as we are losing so many, right? We had lost so many uh, Black lives over the past few years arranging uh, what what I ended up calling um, MIT ciphers about these issues like they mm. my, my colleagues allowed me to experiment with these things. Um, so that kind of led me to this role. My undergrad role um, was really just uh, focused on creating community for undergraduates. Uh, and so while that is not necessarily the focus, the super focus of my role, um, I think I find all of those things interconnected because if our staff are better, our faculty better, our undergraduate students have a better experience. Um, I am still connected to our office. Like we, my old office, uh, we're literally about 50, 100 feet away. Um, And I consider them great thought partners on, right? Like how how can we make this institution better because um, our undergraduates are going to leave and be leaders in such and such fields. And um, I have the responsibility from a programmatic standpoint to supply them with speakers, workshops, conversations that will help them, right? S- schools like Sloan help the world go round, right? Mm-hmm. Or make the world go round. We mm-hmm. wanna make sure it's go- spinning in the right direction. Without a doubt. Powerful.
1: Me, it it resonates with me because I consider myself and I call a system centered researcher. Mm -hmm. My focus is on organizational design and behavior, and I'm interested in the ways in which designs or systems Mm -hmm. impact the the behaviors or attitudes of of the people within them. you know, the idea of if you, if you see a, a, a child who's behaving in a particular way, someone's question might be, what kind of household is, is it coming from, Like, how, how, how's it being run here, your, fo- your focus immediately goes to the structure. Um, so when you're talking about culture, which is in your title, I love the fact that you acknowledge faculty, staff, and students all composites of this larger thing that we acknowledge to be culture, this environment. Um, and. Sort of, uh, sort of those laws of behaviors, which I won't go into now. But this, you know, the the the, the larger uh, sort of system and ecosystem here that where that is in, in many ways DEI or an inclusive space. Mm-hmm. Where um, we're pressing up on time here, I got I got a couple of questions, but I got to get at least two more in if I can. Yeah, go, uh, I'm here, man. So um, <clears throat> there's an old adage. Let's see if I want to start. There's an old adage that. I'm I'm fond of I've come across in the work of DEI I use pretty often when I try to highlight racial issues and I'm sure you might be familiar with this as well this idea of uh, once we resolve race everything else falls in place Mm -hmm. Uh, especially unique to the U.S. because of how latticed race is into the fabric of who we are Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the country's founding on paper right in framework in 1776 and on, I'm not necessarily talking about beforehand when we're talking about indigenous land although that's a part of the conversation as well but to keep it within context earlier you talked about or you alluded to uh, maybe what i should say is what i what i gleaned from what you were saying was the importance of of naming things uh systems or structures that are problematic as a way to not engage in a Eurocentric approach to doing mm-hmm. to doing the work as so you can dismantle. I guess my question to you is how much of the work of, or how much is the naming of diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. how much does that actually get in the way of real racial and social justice work? When you, when you mask it under DEI,
0: is that a white way of going about
1: mm-hmm. what we need to be
0: doing, which is like racial and social justice work? That is a great question, Gerard. Um, I think um, I think one of the critical things um, in social justice work um, is the is the art of translation. Um, I really do, and I think we. We know that we need um, to some degree the the capital and power and influence and ideas, you know, not to reframe everything, uh, not to reframe the efforts of the people uh, people of color like us who have been working on these problems for so long. Um, but we need white people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to work on this stuff with us and to use their capital when it makes sense and to speak with us especially if they're labeling themselves as advocates and and you know allies and these things right so we need them to do that especially Mm -hmm. since they have just numbers wise certain seats at the table that we do not have representation at yet right um and so if if framing things in like using the word DEI versus anti-racism or, you know, decolonization um, or, right? Like critical race theory, right? Right. We need to be, I don't want to be, however, in certain cases we need to be bridge builders and translators. And so if that's gonna get somebody over the bridge, then I'm okay with utilizing DEI to describe all of these other things that are more poignant and and more specific. Um, And then making those specific connections to anti-racism, critical race theory, um, what it means to be an ally, uh, what it means to be a disruptor um, as we move along. right? Reach and cheat reach and teach as I as I was referencing others. Right. I need to reach these folks first. Um however I do see the DEI as a term being problematic. Um because people can just say, hey, we've got a DEI office, like check. Check, right? right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um and so um and so if we and and so that the 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 mistake that is made there is that they don't pay attention to right a lot of companies organizations will focus on diversity um so that is that is numeric right sure equity is policy right we can frame policy we can do that that is very that's non nebulous ish or less nebulous mm-hmm. but inclusion like the feeling that you belong to a place is a little different so like I think inclusion is the apex right that is where all of this stuff is driven and so um we need to remind our peers our friends our people that like inclusion is like that's the goal it's not just three Uh, three things that have equal relationship to one another, they're definitely related in my eyes, Mm -hmm. right? But inclusion is the goal, right? And so anything less than that, I think we're falling short. And I do think, right, there are certain organizations that are like, yeah, I'm really interested in this diversity work, but, you know, inclusion, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not about that life, Um, right? Because that means I need to change my behavior, Right. Mm-hmm. And so conversations that um I've had with colleagues, past faculty, you know, you know, we can talk about recruiting, right? And oh, there's just not a pipeline, or oh, we found, you know, a few folks. Oh, you know, the process is that, you know, we're we're doing blind resume reading and everything, you know, all of that like that's you know, also I have a whole TED talk on, not right. official, but whole TED talk on. Like, Ted <laughs> right. On. <laughs> right because if I don't know if that that last name is Johnson right like I don't know if that person's getting in right right yeah so but mm-hmm. you know that I kind of digress inclusion is the apex and we need to bring that to the center so that it is not just um it should be IDE or D I E or not D I E. that would be a little different uh, <laughs> you get what I'm you get what I'm saying you sound so, like me Yeah. yeah yeah but uh, if inclusion is not the goal, then yes, it's easier to mask the work that actually needs to be done by just re- referencing things as uh, this is a di and uh, i initiative, so yeah. Yeah, without a doubt, I, it sounds,
1: you know, I I hear you talking, I just, I just hear my work, I'm like, wow, because, you know, I, I try to remind folks that there's an order of operations to this. Um it shows up slightly different but our, our our vision is the same and and one thing i try to tell people in the hiring process for example is that you can't do diversity without inclusion and mm-hmm. yes. you can't do recruitment without retention yes. uh, and if you think of diversity or recruitment as diversity you think of retention as inclusion or inclusion as as retention um, if you try to recruit folks without the measures in place to retain them yeah. then you failed in your recruitment efforts uh, yep. the fact of the matter is research will show you that an individual's decision to, to retain anywhere in any kind of ship, or personal relationship, intimate relationship, workplace relationship, friendship, et cetera, has everything to do with their sense of belonging, their sense of value. And if you're not retaining folks, <clears throat> then they're going to leave that particular situation for whatever reason makes sense to them. Um, so inclusion needs to be at the core of, of what we're trying to do. And a lot of times inclusion has a <clears throat> it's intrinsic, has an internal. Uh, sort of examination component to it in ways that diversity by itself doesn't really it tends to be more external um representation or sort of sending a message inclusion as you're eloquently saying is forcing you and asking you to do the real work which is internal i want to hit you with one more question austin and then we're going to wrap this up i know you've got to go i've I've
0: got i've I've got like 15 Fifteen so or so minutes. So if you need, if you can squeeze two in. I'm happy to do that too.
1: Perfect. I'll keep an eye. I'll keep an eye right on the time, then, brother. Um, I want to read you uh, a piece of a quote here that I think you might recognize. I'm going to syncopate it a little bit for the sake of time. There's a difference between not guilty and not found guilty. Uh, the trial of this guy was a performance uh, to the highest degree. I'd say the potential precedent this sets is dangerous until we fix some serious systemic issues in this country. Yeah. November 19th, 2021, Facebook post by yours truly, yeah. Brother Austin Ash. Yeah. Uh, this was in reference to the Rittenhouse case. Yeah. Talk to me and to the audience a little bit about what was on your mind when you wrote this, um, and what do you see as the largest systemic cultural and social implications in what you referenced?
0: So, um... Oh, man, I didn't know you're going to pull out all these receipts, Gerard, uh, but I <laughs> expect nothing less, right? Um, what that quote represents is, um, right, it is very emblematic of so many things that are going on today. So, you know, we can talk about privilege, right, and, and um, the ability to see someone just because of what they look like and, you know, he was just protecting himself you know, or he seems like a nice boy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the people that will cape for them, mm-hmm. right? And call this person a hero and give him interview times. This person murdered people. Yeah. yeah? Multiple. Multiple people. Yeah. So, um, however, we live during a time, and this, I mean, not during a time, this has been historic. Right. Where people are consciously making the decision to not find somebody responsible um, for the injuries that they have caused when they went out looking to injure folks, right? Like, and so in the disparity, right? Like, I don't wanna get into the trope of like, right? But I have to, like, if this person was If Kyle was Puerto Rican or if he was black, um, if he was from, you know, um, Haiti, right? Like this story ends very differently, right? We dehumanize him. We call him a monster. We talk about, um, you know, what's wrong with him instead of, right, the things that we should be talking about why is he able to have an assault rifle walking down a street at a protest where he is obviously seeking to be an agitator, right? Across state lines, right? So, so, um, right. So if, you know, again and again, we need to realize that we are working against a system that is choosing choosing whiteness first, right. um, because, the, I mean, like take the judge, for example. Oh, my God. Like,
1: mm, that's
0: right. Um, right? Yeah. So many, right? From the judge, like, how we appoint judges needs to change. Mm-hmm. How we enforce cross-state line crimes needs to change. How we think about loss of life um, needs to change. Yes. And and we don't talk about enough, right? That the people that lost their lives weren't people of color, mm-hmm. right? They were white. So like, like y'all can get it too,
1: right? Right. Yeah, right. right. That's, what That's we the message
0: to understand, yep. right? Like y'all can get it too, and we need to work together to dismantle some of these systemic issues, gun control. Um, how courts operate and appoint judges. Like that, the, 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 the trial was a bit of a circus. Uh, and so, um, but these are all cultural systems that are embedded in the fabric of this country. And it has been whiteness, preserving white, like the white right to preserve life first, above everything else. Um, and so we need to work on those things. Wow. That was
1: powerful. I can appreciate that big time. It leads me to, because we have the time, <clears throat> my final question for you. And I want to thank you again, Brother Austin, for taking some time out. Um, I know you're in a pinch and I, I really am grateful for you. Um, take this one wherever you want to go. Um, I was brought into conversation recently. I cannot for the life of me remember with whom or, or when even. But the point the person was making was that Integration has happened and is happening in many ways in the US, but it occurred and or is occurring without any real recognition or acknowledgment of the harms that existed before integration, so that led to integration and engaging in it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a very stark question here. But is or was there actual real value in a segregated society for Black people? Mm. And let me, let, me, let, me, let me couch this a little bit more. Yeah. My mentor, one of my mentors, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. one time showed a slide of all of the historical black folks we know to be our leaders in the cultural history. And he asked one question, what do all these folks have in common? From Dr. King to Malcolm X to Du Bois to James Baldwin to Toni Morrison to Nikki Giovanni, you name it. And the answer was they all were educated in a segregated society. Mm-hmm. So I pose the question back, is there value in that for black folks?
0: Yes. I mean, emphatically, yes, there is value. I mean, there is, um, you know, uh, the first thing I think of, um, the first thing I thought of when you were framing that question for me is Black Wall Street, right? But also, like, that Mm -hmm. is the story that everybody knows, right? Um, Century ago, yeah. Right. There are several different Black Wall Streets, right, Right. that have, um, where, black folks were concentrated and building businesses and going to church and looking out for one another and thriving right only to be interrupted by maliciously right like of what i can only imagine is well what if these people become successful and equal right that is insane to me Mm -hmm. it is insane um, and so just for, um, the preservation of life, it is necessary. It's, it's necessary mm. now. Um, how, and we live in a society, uh, maybe more so now than years ago. Um that was prepared for that, but right? We know that operate uh, that racism operates very it's a chameleon and will evolve to meet the needs to preserve um, white dominance yeah. and and power. Yeah. Um, I think of HBCUs. and the 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 brothers that I meet that graduated from HBCUs and how they talk about their experience there as being, um, I mean, certainly more validating, but they talk about education in a way that I think that has been lost, right? It is not, for for HBCUs, um, the act of educating is not a consumer um a consumer driven um process or right. you know right like it is about empowering the, pe- the students that are in the classroom space right need their best selves that's right. right that is something that i did not have right um and right i'm like damn i should have went to an hbcu right because a lot of the things that i'm t- i was talking about earlier right i would have been able to just dis- deconstruct a lot quicker. Um about how even though I'm highly aware of the fact that I um am Black in America and what and how that my experience is different um than other other folks. Like I'm highly aware of that. That's thanks to my mom, my grandmother, right. uh, the church that we went to. Um also like a bit about the church, um, like HPCU's a haven. From the ills of outside. and right. the the one of the few places we have that talks about America not as um as the dream, as Coates describes it, in mm-hmm. between the world and me, right? Not as the dream, but as what it really is., yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so um, so the church was like one of the few places, the probably the first place that I, besides my mother and my grandmother, talked about America as problematic right um, yeah or 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 um or like a, like in some cases hypocrisy like i love living in this country and i'm appreciative of the fact that we don't have to deal with certain issues that other people have to deal with in the world mm-hmm. doesn't make um it doesn't make it doesn't provide the argument for me to describe America as the dream, though, and so I think HBCUs, right, are an institution. Again, you know, talk, you know, we were talking about critical race theory a little bit. Looks at the 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 um, experience of living in America uh, in a very critical, honest, and transparent way, and there is a reason when we see somebody. Um, who is commentating on CNN, or you know, a black leader that's head of a nonprofit, or you know, some company? A lot of these brothers went to HBCUs, right? Um, and that network is strong. And so, so to answer your question, I do think to some degree it is necessary until we can think about how to how to be better to one another, how to pay teachers better. How to create equitable um, uh, curriculum and culturally relevant curriculum K through 12 yep. um, how to incorporate stem and steam in the classroom mm-hmm. the arts right um, and creating spaces for students right like I made the mistake of of creating spaces so that they can tell their stories and add knowledge to the classroom because they are not a disruption right um, they are our future leaders of tomorrow. They are real people experiencing things. So I do think to some degree it is necessary. Um, and um, and the Obama in me, right? Um, wants us to be able to live in a society where I can look across, um, the table my best friend in high school was italian dude by the name of mike palumbo right you couldn't find two different people um (laughs) but we loved each other right that is the that is that's the dream right that is the dream where we can all be here um and and look across the table and show love um and not think about what i'm losing for showing love to another person or fighting for them right or recognize them so right um so i do think it's needed um in in a lot of ways and i'm still fighting for something a future that i may never see that my son may see right yes doesn't have to worry about being pulled over or he has to worry less about being pulled over
1: right right Right. which is i I couldn't agree more is absolutely the goal of being able to live in yourself, your complete self, you know, in, in a country that, in a world really, where that should be a human right first before, before a civil right, right? So this, the, the segregated society in the past we saw had worked um, in terms of education, and, and today maybe it's not a segregated society, maybe it's caucused spaces of uh, some fashion, um, yes. or, or, you know, uh, not using these identities as as divisive, but as a way to
0: celebrate who we are and collectively as well as yeah. individually. One of the before we head out, Sharar, there's one thing. Please, um, there's one been one powerful thing that is that I'm a, a, incredibly grateful for, and so I just have to mention it. Please. Um. So living in Boston, right? Uh. You know, I've lived here for a, a nice chunk of my life, and so Boston has its history, right? Mm-hmm um Boston is also experiencing a bit of a renaissance where where yeah, people of color in positions of power in That's China, right. whether it be politics um nonprofit spaces and education there is a tide turning that mm-hmm. so we need to keep our foot on the gas and i think what to your point what has made a lot of this possible um is the caucusing right meeting in meeting together across disciplines across industry and figuring out right like how do we help one another um i think that is incredibly important that interdisciplinary thinking of right this is not just me with my company or me trying to do right and get money for my family it's a cultural system that we need to work on together to break and so meeting in you know meeting at the church you know as a metaphor where we can feel safe to call things out and build together i think that will be the linchpin of continued progress in cities like boston without a doubt without a doubt and
1: i I can really appreciate you stating that and acknowledging that shift that the city has gone through awesome before i let you go uh how can people get in touch with you man any uh websites hashtags ads on social media publications yeah
0: um, I mean, LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn, uh dot com. I think the forward slash me Austin Ash. I think okay. that is the uh, I think that's the link. Uh, you could also find me on Twitter, uh, at AAA. So that's my three initials AAA, S as in Sam, H as in Harry, E is in excellent. Uh, so at Twitter, um, so that's on Twitter, uh, and those are probably my two preferred methods of communication. You could also email me at aaashe at if you want to talk any of this education stuff. So
1: perfect, brother. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of folks interested in hip hop ed specifically as we engage more. All right, y'all. Thank you all so much for joining in for today's session on the podcast. Here we are with the chopping block. Sherrod Robbins, Austin Ash, you with the chopping block on visceralchange.org.